This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Today, we're breaking down Uber. Despite a corporate history that spans just over a decade, the ink spilled on Uber could have its own wing in a library. So rather than record with our typical breakdown format, we decided to host two portfolio managers and familiar guests on the podcast, Mario Cibelli and Ram Parmiswaran, to walk through their cases for Uber stock. Uber is the case study for network effects in two-sided marketplaces, but a controversial corporate culture, ongoing regulatory battles, and the debate over unit economics has made it the battleground stock since going public in 2019. During our wide-ranging conversation, we cover the opportunity for Uber's business segments, what deteriorating service means for the product, and what COVID may have revealed regarding Uber's financials. While Mario and Ram are clearly Uber bulls, it's particularly fun to hear where their views align and differ. It's a great reminder that we can all take very different paths to arrive at the same conclusion. Please enjoy this great breakdown of Uber. So Ram and Mario, I know that both of you have a position in the stock Uber that we're going to talk about today which makes this fun because obviously you've considered it very deeply. I also think it's one of the most iconic modern businesses. Every single person listening will probably have used it at some point. So we don't need to do a whole lot of background on what the service itself is. But I think rather than start at the beginning, which we normally do, we'll start today. Mario, maybe I'll go to you first with just an overview of what you find most interesting about the business, why it got your attention, and where you sort of began to dove in when you did a deep dive on the company. Since day one, when I first heard about it, which was probably going back eight or nine years ago, something like that, initial reaction was that this was a great business. What a great idea. You know, absolutely amazing. And then during the pandemic in Q1 2020, you know, we really sharpened our pencil and got to work. I think it's unquestionably a good business. There's classic marketplace attributes is brokering between two fractured groups, riders and drivers. It's doing it at an unprecedented scale. It happens to be monetizing a very everyday use case. So tolling local movements at this scale and with this much data is unprecedented. So I just think it's an absolutely wonderful business that unfortunately is not getting recognized as such right now. Ron, maybe we'll obviously come back to reasons why you might be wrong. We'll try to hit all of them. I think at a high level, I get it. Fragmented marketplaces tended to be a pretty good place to build a business historically, and especially one with such an enormous TAM of just moving stuff and people around. Ron, maybe you could just describe the business as you think about it in its steady state today. What are the major aspects of it? Where does most of the revenue or gross bookings come from? How has that evolved over time? It's funny. I've had this history with Uber going back 2015. I invested in them back at $28 a share. I'm finally in the black right now, which is good, which has been a long ride so far, which again is a testament to the twists and turns that I could not have predicted in the last five or six years of the journey. So today, the business is, the way I would describe it is, it's got a market-leading, world-leading position as the undisputable and actually impossible to dethrone 
ride-sharing business in the world, at least in the foreseeable future. Maybe when autonomous cars happen in some time in the future, get mass appeal, there may be issues. But for now, over the next three to five years, it seems that Uber is by far the largest scale asset in ride-sharing. Now, on top of that, they were one of the earliest companies to, on top of the ride-sharing business, slap on a delivery business, which started with food. And today, they not only do food, but we have certain acquisitions. They do groceries and now things and so on and so forth. So the way I think about Uber, and we've talked about the big picture theme here, which is I believe Uber is going to be one of those two or three countries, companies in the world that is the delivery of everything, people, products, and food. And when you have this delivery of everything, you become effectively one of the two or three largest layers at scale in the world. And that is what is so interesting to me. I think that's the end game for Uber. And some of the acquisitions they made recently, while it's not necessarily smart in the short term, in my opinion, it actually has a play in the long-term thesis of Uber as well. So that's where the company's at right now. So I wanted to quickly kind of like level-base people to the scale of Uber. I would say, listen, there's a rights business. Now, 2020 was a difficult year for them. But at least before the pandemic, the rights business was making $50 billion of volume at north of 20% net take rates and with not 20% margins. They had a 50% drawdown, maybe 75% at the peak of the recession. And now they are probably down 30% from peak. So making nice, steady, steady progress. In the meantime, they had a delivery business which started at 14 billion in 2019. In this quarter, the run rate is equal to the rights business. So in three years, they've scaled a delivery business equal to the rights business and growing at an unprecedented rate, north of 50% into the third quarter as well. And now they have a fledgling delivery business on top of that. And so when you look at the iconic businesses in the world, when you talk about Amazon, you talk about DoorDash in the US, you have to believe that from a worldwide basis, Uber, if they execute well, should be one of those iconic businesses as well. How do you think about the importance of multiple use cases, in this case, moving people, moving groceries or food, moving stuff. So Uber Freight becomes interesting here. I was surprised that the volume levels for Uber Freight, which I don't think many people know all that much about, what happens as a result of going into these different verticals versus something that is, let's just say they had just stared in, stayed in ride sharing, or I don't know if this is Lyft is the proper example here, but what do they pick up from going into these different verticals that enhances the others? The way I think about this is we have to disassociate freight with the other two parts of the business. So you've got what I call a consumer business and a B2B business. The consumer business is starters rights, and you layer on delivery of food, and then you layer on delivery of groceries, either first party or third party. And then you layer on courier services, point-to-point courier services. That is the standalone entity there. The advantage in that part of the business is you acquire the consumer once, and then between two different apps, you can cross-sell the product. And so that has tremendous synergies when it comes to cost of customer acquisition. You acquire the consumer once, it's free acquisition for more volume. And on the supply side, I think there's some advantage. There's not a lot of advantage. You can acquire the same driver. If the driver has a reasonable car, he or she can use that for people delivery in the morning and then maybe goods delivery in the evening, depending on what she wants to do. But what happens for the grocery and the food delivery businesses actually unlocks long tail of drivers which hopefully over time will enjoy the gig economy, they will upgrade themselves and may want to become drivers themselves for the people side of the business. So it's interesting when you have multiple layers, you basically end up with multiple wedges 
to acquire customers on one side and drivers on the other side. And then that hopefully gets the flywheel spinning on a local basis. The business-to-business side, which is freight, I think that's a bit of a far-fetched vision. And I'm actually personally not sure how it fits in the overall journey, but I'm sure we can debate that. Mario, what do you think about that freight side of the equation? I think the opportunity is so big in the core businesses and you know, specifically mobility, I think is the one that I'm most excited about over time, that investment in time and energy and thought in freight doesn't feel optimal. How much time does the Uber board spend on freight? My guess is, is not a whole lot, and they probably shouldn't be given the opportunities in the two other core businesses. And if they're not spending a lot of time on it, I'm not even sure that's good for the freight business either. I do think keeping distractions to a minimum with the massive opportunity that's available in delivery and mobility probably makes sense. And freight may have a tremendous future. There's so much potential value to be delivered from getting mobility right and delivery right that I kind of relegate freight to something that over time, I would think probably doesn't belong under the Uber umbrella. I'd love to really then focus with that as an aside on freight on the core business for most of our conversation today. And because it's a marketplace, I really want to pick apart the nature and history of both supply and demand here. I'm reminded since Bill Gurley was the Series A investor in the business of one of my favorite ideas of his, which is this notion of a two-by-two chart where in a marketplace business, you want the value to the customer, if that's on the y-axis, and the penetration of supply on the x-axis, you want to draw a sort of 45-degree line up and to the right on that page. So the more supply, in this case, in Uber, in a geographic area, let's say, the more valuable it becomes to the customer because there are shorter wait times, probably better prices, et cetera. I just love that concept. And Uber seems like the perfect business to use as an excuse to explore it. Maybe you can begin by talking about supply. So what is the history of getting drivers here? I mean, we know that it started with black cars and then moved to this more peer-to-peer model. Maybe talk about that transition, how they've acquired drivers in the past and today, and the things that sort of matter to you on the supply side. Whether it's historical or current, it's the same methodology to acquire drivers. What Uber does, and this is the way they used to hire people, they would hire the super aggressive, super bright young people coming out of typically a consulting or a banking program three to five year program. And they would just throw a bunch of what I call responsibility at them to launch a city. Uber probably was the first company that built this idea of a template-based per city expansion. Because remember, you talked about that 45 degree line that Gurley talked about. It's all about local scale economies. You've got to acquire more things on a local basis. Just the way Amazon is built on a microservices architecture My kind of framework for Uber is Uber is actually built on a microservices architecture on the supply side of the business. So what they would do is they would send a star team into an important city and they would find multiple ways of acquiring supply first. They would go to a driver where drivers would hang out, depending on the city, for example. They would do Facebook advertising. They would look at where service workers would live, put pamphlets out there. They would just acquire a bunch of drivers. And there are many ways of acquiring these. And over time, those templates and formulas became better and better and better because once they implemented 10 cities, they learned the lesson. There were real-scale economies of just advertising. They would go to the next 10 cities and hype it up before, right? And that's how they acquired drivers. So every team is a self-contained 
operating team on the ground, typically one or two cities, sometimes a larger area. Then they broke it up by density. For example, when you go to smaller towns, for example, you would have evangelists on the ground to constantly acquire drivers, retain drivers and give them incentives. I remember a few years ago, you would go to malls in America and you would see the Uber driver kiosk saying, hey, sign up to be an Uber driver here. And I still get asked to sign up to be Uber driver. So my point is, that's the way they would acquire on the driver front. And again, it's very interesting. I think Uber's talent management historically was just exceptional. The number of people I've seen, again, as you know, I believe in one of my heuristics is I look for where talent is going as a view to where companies are going. Uber was an unbelievable talent magnet for a very long time in our industry. Best and brightest went to Uber first, whether it was on the operational side for the consultant banker type who wanted to make a switch to tech or for engineers who wanted to basically build an incredible career. And so that's the way they built out the supply side. And what's amazing about Uber is they did it not only locally, it was San Francisco first and then Los Angeles, but then they started doing it globally. And for me, when I invested in Uber back in the day, it was the pace of acquisition, the pace of scale is what was frightening amazing execution capability because the company became very, very, very large, which also ended up with some problems later. But even today, the situation is, you know, the person who runs the rights business is an old hand guy called Andrew McDonald, super smart guy, and he has all the playbooks. And that's why they're able to expand to new cities all the time. And they just know the playbook and nobody can match the playbook for them. Aria, one of the concepts early on in their business, I think under Kalanick was this concept of zeros, the thing they wanted to avoid was on the demand side, someone that wants a ride opens the app and there's no drivers in the area. They called that a zero and they managed away from that. Like that was a key KPI or metric for them internally for the quality of the service. I think that's an interesting excuse to talk about what's happened lately, which is you hear a lot of people saying this service is broken somehow. Like the wait times have gone up, the prices have gone up. I've certainly experienced this. At one point I was using Uber for literally everything going to the airport and now I've switched back to like a car service because of the unreliability in my area. I think the first order thinking here would be, this is not a good sign for the business and the product. How do you think about that trend in this kind of post-COVID era? That's kind of what motivated me a bit here to come on and talk with Ram, which was your ride is not an investment thesis make. And I think there's been a ton of that. The classic example this summer was, I think some reporter from the New York Times flew to LA or San Francisco or something like that. And the ride to JFK cost more than the flight. I think there is stress you know, in the supply demand, we have demand coming back faster than supply in many cases. This is such a big company with such scale. To me, it's really silly to think that I can make an observation about this company based on my ride or some quote. I have called the app undeletable. I think there's so much utility provided by it that even if it frustrates you, even if you happen to curse at it once because you had a bad experience, I've certainly cursed at Uber a couple of times, the Uber app will say. There's no way I'd delete it. Once I have my credentials in there, payment, everything like that, my ride history, where I'm going, all those saved places, there's too much demand in getting a quote for where I'm going from point A to point B, a real-time quote that they'll commit to. There's imbalance in the marketplace right now. I was joking with Ram the other day, when I see a high price in the morning when I'm going to work, I, as a shareholder, I'm happy about it. It means I have a neighbor that's willing to pay a higher price than me. I think, if anything, it demonstrates there's price inelasticity in the marketplace here. There will be ebbs and flows, but I think there's no evidence whatsoever that the level of service that existed pre-virus is unattainable. I think it's absolutely attainable. 
The shareholders have to look through what's currently going on in the right now in the marketplace. And I realize, especially I think in some of the non-urban areas, the wait times are up significantly. The wait times are difficult, aren't wonderful to have. But I think there's no evidence to say that somehow pre-coronavirus, that was a marketplace that was somehow artificial or not right. I think that absolutely will come back at one point. And I think it'll be really obvious when it does. And the opportunity probably in the share price will be gone at that point. Do you agree with this concept, Ram, of like the busted but booming model for thinking? I'm totally with Mario on this. So the important metric to track is, I invested in Uber pre-IPO. I asked him the simple question, what is your ratio of drivers to consumers? Like, what are your targets? The same point you made about, hey, when I open the app, there, better, there should be no zeros. And the metric used to be one to 20. For every 20 people in America, that was an American stat, we need one driver, which means you need 15 million drivers at scale approximately in the country. And I don't know how many drivers they have, but at some point they used to have 15 million drivers. I am not a huge fan of excessive pricing, generally speaking, because in the long term, you end up with some demand issues. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. What I would say is it doesn't make me happy to pay a lot for an Uber ride, but that's just a function of demand and supply. Today, we live in a country where there are real labor constraints. Across any on-demand company in America, they're struggling to acquire consumers. Amazon has to pay, which is a good thing I would actually argue for Amazon. They pay for education for their warehouse workforces. And every company has had to up the ante in retaining their labor. So we live in a labor-constrained market right now. My suspicion is those pressures will ease over the next three, six, nine months, especially if people go back to the workforce and people get less worried about COVID and the federal stimulus packages slow down, you will end up with a more reasonable supply ecosystem. On the buyer ecosystem and the story of people bitching about the cost of the ride, that's been there since the beginning of the company. Remember the typhoon in New York years ago, or I was there in New York in 2013, when everything was shut down, half the city was a ghost town and Uber surges. How many times have we heard complaints in the press about, oh my God, the surge was too much. My point is, we've done a lot of checks on, spoken to a lot of ex-engineers and people in the business who worked on the algos there. I do not believe for a second there's anything nefarious going on. It's not like somebody's sitting behind. There are three people sitting behind with evil masks on, twiddling the knobs to screw consumers. That is not true, right? And when I see the narrative... Of the, it's a market. It's a classic marketplace. There are rich people, unfortunately, in wherever you live who want to pay for stuff and who'll say, who will pay for stuff? <laughs> it's just very simple. And that is life. And we either accept it or we reject it. The point I want to make to Uber is, in a way, in many ways, last quarter, when they basically missed their numbers completely, the reason I was very happy to give them a pass is they were doing it for the right reasons. They were not spending money on acquiring consumers by giving them discounts. They were giving incentives to drivers to onboard them because every marketplace works by getting the supply side working first. Because as Mario pointed out, the demand is extreme. Today, we're tracking Uber demand in the US to be less than 20% of 2019 levels. As we go back to airports, travel is going to be a big travel season coming up. People want the reliability of Uber and they want to get to their destination in time. My sense is it's going to be a struggle for Uber on the supply side for the next quarter, few quarters at least. I think Uber knows how to price its service. The amount of data here is just immense if you think about it. Think about all the ways that they have to discern intent based on day part, based on address, going to a concert. What time does a concert start? If you're going to a restaurant, I have found some arbitrages in here. If you put in 
the destination as the name of a restaurant, that might look a little bit different than an address around the corner that's just some generic address. I think Uber absolutely knows how to price its service. It has more data than anyone. I mean, does any entity in the world have more local movement data than Uber? I don't think so. I think it's unprecedented. There's one company that has more data, which is Google Maps. But outside of Google Maps, nobody else has it. I think they know exactly how to price their product. And it's a marketplace. Yeah, it should anger a couple of people. But the goal is to make as many connections as it can profitably at the highest revenue per ride. And there's no way they're doing a poor job there. And if anything, the whole coronavirus experience has kind of demonstrated the model still works. It still functions. It still worked through all of that. That's unbelievable. What a test. Probably the ultimate test, Mario. And again, just on that one point, I would say, listen, even at the peak of Corona, second quarter numbers, they turned a segment level profit. Your demand is down 73% or 75%, 90% in some parts of the world, and you still turn a profit. This tells you that the variable costs are a big portion of that equation and the fixed costs are taken care of. It was unprecedented to see that. Now we have to talk about some of the financials of the business and just sort of how the actual thing itself works, income statement, balance sheet, financing, capital efficiency. If you were to talk to Uber bears, some of them would be skeptical of the historical unit economics of the business and the amount of capital. I think they've raised $25 billion across like a crazy number of investment rounds of primary capital. That would be a source of interest or skepticism, let's say, if we were to take the other side. We should do it for both rides and delivery. Let's just say there's a $100 purchase. I either buy $100 worth of food or whatever, that's my bill, or I'm going to the airport and it costs $100. Maybe just walk me through how that $100 flows from me through the stakeholders in the Uber ecosystem. So in the rides business, so just to level set numbers, in 2019, rides did $50 billion of volume. In 2020, it was down approximately 50% peak to trough compared to 19. And today, they're trending at, let's say, between minus 20 and minus 30 from 2019. In 2021, they will do 40 billion in volumes, so it's still lower than 2019. In 2022, next year, more than 2019. That seems very reasonable. So that's just the scale of the business. So if we take 2022 estimates, the way you think about the margin structure here, and it's really important to distinguish the US and international. It's really important. The U.S. is a worse business than international, which is really funny because when you talk about heuristics like Netflix or other companies that had big international businesses, the view was, oh, the U.S. is the moneymaker, the big business, and then international, eh, the margins aren't very good there. Overall, if you look at the business, you have a $15 average order value, not 100 Okay, let's start there. They make around between 20 and 25% in net take rate from that. They make around $3.50 approximately. Now, below that, the big problem in Uber is you've got insurance costs. Insurance costs in the US is approximately between $0.75 and $1 of every ride. That's around 5% of GPB. So it's not cheap. You end up with approximately 60% gross margins on a net day rate of 20%. And then below that, you've got opt-in support of 10%. You've got sales and marketing of between 15 and 20%, depending on how you want to allocate it. You've got 15% R&D, and that basically ends up in a 15% EBITDA margin business after adding back some SBC and DNA. Our math is on a per ride basis, Uber makes between a dollar and a dollar fifty in pure segment level EBITDA per ride. That's the way the math works, and it could be higher. Now, this is the blended number across. Sorry, this is the US number. The blended number is slightly lower, 
because what happens international is the international AOVs are smaller. They're around four to five dollars, but the margin structures are very high. One, because the cost of driver acquisition in some countries is really cheap. The cost of driver payouts, there is no minimum wage of $15 per hour. That's very low. And number three, when you do those two things, you end up with some countries, the UAE, I think, trends at north of 60% margin. So UAE, France, and Australia is a north of a 60% margin business. And we know these numbers are correct because if you compare them to Grab Taxi, for example, the certain parts of Southeast Asia are also a 60% margin business. I want to be very clear here. It may be a higher margin business internationally, which is great, but the dollar EBITDA per ride is going to be lower because the AOVs are lower internationally. But the point is still important that international is almost half the business, probably a little more than half the business, and growing much faster than the U.S., in fact, certain parts of international are already at or higher than 2019 levels. And the U.S. is where the laggard is. But that's the unit economics math in this business. What I love about Uber, the right business is, if you take our estimate of 2022 EBITDA, in 2022, we believe there's at least $4 billion in EBITDA in the rights business alone. And let's say 23 is $5 billion. I think Mario's numbers are around the same, but Mario, I'd love to get your estimates too, obviously. And 24 is slightly higher. So four, five, six billion dollars. The total corporate overhead at Uber, the total corporate overhead is not more than $2 billion. So what does this mean? This means that the rights business alone next year will generate $2 billion available for almost anything they want. The year after, more than $3 billion. The year after, more than $4 billion. Because the corporate overhead is not changing very much. What that tells me is the company will have between six and $10 billion cumulatively over the next three years, minimum from the rights business to invest. And this is not assuming heroic growth numbers. This is assuming the rights business grows 15%, which is very reasonable. One, you have easy comms this year to next year, and then you have a more steady, steady growth of at least 15%. And so this is why me and Mario, when we were preparing for this presentation, we were scratching our heads and maybe we're maybe in the weeds too much, but it is absolutely an amazing business in rides. And I hope I explain the numbers now. I think it's very clear that incremental rides really help leverage the fixed expenses. And pre-coronavirus in the third quarter and fourth quarter in 2019, the conversion into profitability, so the delta in segment EBITDA over the delta in revenue, is a very high contribution. So I think there is potential here for significant margin expansion over time in the core mobility business. I tend to think more about the first normalized 12 months coming out of coronavirus. So rather than say 22 or 23, and what do those first normalized 12 months look like? Kind of take Q4 2019 bookings, annualize them and grow it at a small incremental rate. We think there's like 4.2, 4.3 billion of segment EBITDA for core mobility over those first 12 months. And I would call that a suboptimal but steady state margin. We assigned 50% of the company's unallocated overhead on that. And overall, it's about 32% EBITDA margins, which I don't think is heroic. For the quality of businesses it is, my belief is that that, those economics would support a large majority of Uber's current market cap when adjusted for its marketable securities and investments. I guess part of the attraction is for me from an investment point of view is that really the mobility business, I think if everything else actually somehow, which is not going to be the case, freight and delivery somehow were worthless, 
I think you'd still get a positive return just with a good outcome, a solid good outcome on mobility, which, you know, that's an attractive opportunity that's kind of rare in, in the marketplace, especially for a business of this size. So those are some of my thoughts on the numbers. I'd love to understand your view on scale and capital. Again, I mentioned the $25 billion that business has raised. You know, that's a large percentage of its market cap. And famously, they've spent a lot of cash just on a million different things to get to this level of scale. Is that a yesterday story? Do you think that that need for capital continues into the future? Does it concern you at all about the business? Absolutely not. So no, there should not be a need for capital in the future at all here based on what mobility is likely to do. Do I think the company raised a lot of capital at a period of time when capital was a weapon? Did that push them into businesses that they might not have sort of organically entered otherwise? Yeah, that was probably the case. And Ram and I were just debating this a little bit yesterday, which is perhaps they felt so confident about the long-term steady state, the end state of the mobility business, they might have said, hey, we kind of have this in the bag. That created like a level of aggression in other business ventures that might have made them more confident to do other things given what they perceived to be long-term monopoly tolling local movements. It was kind of an interesting concept. I would say, Patrick, it's the capital race was enormous. Capital was being used as a weapon. You cannot talk about capital as a weapon without talking about the competitive landscape the company went through over those few years. Remember, ride-sharing, which is the core business, ignore delivery, which is more of a recent phenomenon, let's say three or four-year phenomenon, is a local scale economies business model, which means that you have two complications there. Number one is, if you want to build a global business, you got to build globally in parallel very, very fast. Number one. Number two is, you've got to get a number one position very, very quickly because the number one position accrues most of the value. And that's an expensive concept. I mean, just imagine... Eight years ago, 10 years ago, we cannot imagine this. Here we are sitting and magically sitting here, ordering food, ordering a car, and just going about our normal lives. 10 years ago, we were not doing this. Now, were there some wasted expenditures and some dumb things? Of course there were. That's what happened with all hypergrowth companies. Was there some megalomania associated with some of the uh, decisions made? Absolutely, 100%. But I would argue that because this is a city by city, location by location, hand-to-hand kind of like battle. And it was at a point in time when capital was plentiful and people said, you know, economics be damned. I would argue you had a lot of wastage. But the good news for us as shareholders today is that's all in the hindsight mirror. That was somebody else's dilution, not mine. I don't worry too much about that. I think in the future, what I would hope is the company would be much more focused on smart capital allocation because the battle lines have been drawn. The battle lines today have been drawn. In the rights business, they are number one in almost every country they're in. There's no questions about it except in China where DD wins the battle and DD is effectively been nationalized right now. So who knows? And as a delivery business, the battle lines have been drawn as well. Again, you are number one in eight out of the 10 international countries you're in. In the US, they have effectively become a number two because of poor execution. And I'm just saying, again, back to the management team, you can go and fight the battle again. But when you have entrenched warriors in a specific space, spending a lot of money jostling for a few points of market share is not the smart decision. So the hope is, under this management team, there will no longer be the wasted capital. And we hope there'll be better smart allocation decisions on capital going forward. 
they nearly broke even internationally on delivery in the second quarter, which was pretty good. I've joked internally, if they shut down the U.S. delivery business, would the stock price go up? Because what would be left would look a lot more like DoorDash, which very, very high valuation in the marketplace. I do think the end state of a very profitable, growing, embedded mobility business sitting beneath a even marginally profitable delivery business market by market, country by country. I think that is potentially an unbelievably good high ground end state. And I really think that's worth going for. And I think they're closer to it than people imagine. I think mobility is just about to turn the corner. It's just about there. This is not a consumer of capital. This is a generator of capital. And we haven't even got into that. What is the company going to do with all its free cash flow? I think Rom and I were going over some of this last night. There's going to be a lot of capital coming out of this business, which will be like a light switch a little bit, I think, for the investment community, because the investment community, a lot of times the hot takes is looking, oh, look at the consolidated losses. Look at the losses. Peel back the layers and look at the pieces underneath. And you realize how much capital is going to be generated over the coming years. What should we do with all the capital? And they do have actually a lot of cash and marketable securities right now. So I would say we're not too far away from conversation that I would want to have with the management team and board, if I was on the board, well, what are we going to do with all this cash? Should we repurchase shares? Should we do a dividend? That is not a far off conversation. I am very against dividends in tech period. So this is where I think the East Coast, West Coast debate comes in. I'm like, please, hell no dividends. I think the balance sheet is actually stretched right now. So we don't need dividends. Thank you very much. Doesn't really move the needle for anybody. Thank you, Mario. What I would say is- Are you creating a fight out of nothing? (laughs) I'm teasing Mario, you know that. But what I would say is, when I listen to Mario, I know what a big fan he is of the mobility business. But when it comes to the delivery business, I feel like the comments that usually are, we get that for free. And I would actually argue, as you know, Patrick, we are huge, huge fans of DoorDash. We own a lot of the stock. We think it's probably one of the best management teams and execution machines in the world. I wanted to quantify the delivery business. Mario just mentioned that the international delivery business is almost break-even. They've talked about that. The U.S. delivery business, once they sunset, the pretty poor acquisition of Postmates will also get to some semblance of profitability over the next 12 months. And again, I talked about incremental $8 billion in EBITDA from the rights business. We estimate another 5 to $7 billion from the delivery business as well on top of that. So here you have on a three-year basis, not 10 years, three years, we have at least $15 billion of excess EBITDA, excluding corporate overhead, which over three years will be $6 billion. So let's do $15 billion minus six. Let's say $10 billion of pure profit available to us. Now, let's compare this. So compare this to May to one. We estimate May to one, $16 to $18 billion, excluding corporate overhead. So including corporate, probably lower. DoorDash, probably 4 to $5 billion because they actually run the business really well. Those are three big companies in the space. Grab, probably $2.5 billion in the rights business. But everybody else, piddly. Delivery hero, $300 million. So this is a dichotomy here. This company will generate $10 billion of actual EBITDA as free cash flow over the next three years because of all the things happening right now. And Meituan, which generates almost the same, is a $250 billion business. And Uber is a 85, 80, something like that right now. You can kind of see how these numbers add up and all the bad. So the hope is that once the company turns the corner on profitability, and then most importantly, if and when management earns the right, earns the right for investors to believe that they will take that capital and allocate it well, 
this is a good risk reward stock. I want to come back to capital allocation in a second. I'm really curious how you guys think about what they should do with that free cash flow. Sounds like we might have an East Coast, West Coast debate brewing, which I love. Before we do that, we haven't talked too much about DoorDash and Lyft, the two most obvious companies that seem relevant as part of the discussion. Maybe we'll start with DoorDash. I'll start with you, Mario, since I know, Ram, you're a big fan. I'm a huge fan of Tony's, the world of, of how he runs that business. How do you think, Mario, about the role that DoorDash plays in this whole ecosystem and whether it's a key variable in your calculus for Uber itself? Hats off to DoorDash and Tony and the team. I think that there's an unusual series of events, including the coronavirus, that helped propel them to an absolutely gigantic player in the U.S., they get credit for spotting that quickly. I'd say it's probably unfortunate Uber Eats kind of left the door open there and helped, I think, also to create that opportunity for DoorDash. Uber was overly focused on urban centers and competing with Grubhub, which is now part of Just Eat Takeaway. And that was probably a strategic mistake. I think DoorDash, they have massive aspirations. They have global aspirations. And it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. But I will say, and Ron may disagree with me here, you know, they are lacking what I consider to be a very, very important piece of the puzzle, which is the mobility business. I just think that that gives Uber a leg up all over the world globally, essentially having a cash cow to continue to think about how to attack this business and how to have additional services for the on-demand marketplaces that it seeks. I just think it's an incredible advantage and the scale that they have is going to make Uber part of any conversation semi-permanently in in this space. Anything else about Lyft that we should think about as interesting or relevant, the number two player here in the US? We don't own Lyft stock. And part of the reason we don't own Lyft stock is when it comes to on-demand, what I've observed over years of doing this is you end up with a healthy, rational market when one of the players is between 65, 60, and 70, the other players between 30 and 35. And my sense is we've hit that comfortable equilibrium right now in the US. There is probably limited advantages for Uber trying to take more market share from Lyft, and maybe the share is slightly higher. And there's very little value in Lyft trying to take more value out of Uber. And the reality is today now, a lot of people push back on this thesis, but I just showed third-party credit card panel data that shows that consistently... Lyft is more expensive than Uber. And by the way, that's true on a per-city basis as well, which is also why Lyft is committed to profitability and Uber is not. Uber hasn't kind of used their algos as aggressively. Guess why? Because they've got a better balance sheet and a better cash flow statement long-term than Lyft can ever have. So I think, listen, both will coexist. I don't believe in natural monopolies. The business is too good. There'll at least be a second player in every market. And in fact, if you take this case study and apply to every other on-demand company, we've talked to almost everybody in the world, what they'll tell you when you talk to, let's say, an Indian on-demand company trying to look at, oh, where do I expand globally? They will say, we'll go to a country where there's a weak number two. So Ola, for example, picks the UK because there is no number two in the UK. There's Uber. And they pick Australia for the same reason because the unit economics in those countries are exceptionally good. Didi, at a point in time, said they would expand into Latin America. Same logic. Similar geographical consumer base that looks and feels the same, Southeast Asia, China, Latin America. At the same time, there is no number two. In every market, I think it would be absurd to believe there will not be a person that attempts a number two if they have enough capital. But capital is getting constrained for this on-demand space right now. As you know, it's out of favor right now. 
especially on the right side. The battle lines have been drawn and the countries have been won at this point. I'll hear new entrants here and there, but I don't think it's going to be a problem. So I think Lyft and Uber are going to exist in comfortable harmony and it's going to be a rational environment where Uber has its 25 to 30%. And that's that. It's really hard to get over superior scale that Uber has. It's a little bit like Netflix amortizing the cost of production over a bigger subscriber base. Uber has that advantage. And I think it's it's almost insurmountable. And yes, there'll be other competitors. But the difference, the returns on capital, uh, the return on marketing spend, everything is just going to be advantage Uber in a fairly dramatic way. And I don't think there's going to be a new rideshare mobility entry in most markets, at least not one that is to be taken seriously. What can we learn from Uber's story about regulation, dealing with regulators and sort of labor as a clustered concept? It seems like the gray area in which Uber operated from a regulatory standpoint through its early history, which I realize is now history, was a fascinating part of this business's story, for sure. Very aggressive or somewhat aggressive in lots of different ways. How do you think about regulation past and present as a variable in the Uber story? I don't think there's going to be a final victory here. I think it's going to be an ongoing game of cat and mouse. And so if someone's sitting back waiting for a full victory on either side, I think that's kind of the wrong way to think about it. I had some experience with rule breakers earlier in my career. One was 1-800-CONTACTS. And I do think if you play by the rules, you don't get to that point where you have enough scale to kind of really go out and change the market. So absolutely, they were aggressive. But I understand that tenacious outlook that a new team would bring trying to create kind of a new market. And consumers have benefited from it. I remember the CEO of 1-800-CONTACTS used to talk about, you know, Southwest Airlines, they had to fight for years to fly out of the airports in Texas and whatnot and all those things. Uber probably was hyper-aggressive, overly aggressive at times, but it did hit on something that really made sense to consumers. That's why it went so damn viral. It was such a good service compared to what existed before. They probably played aggressively, and it does get the attention of regulators and politicians. That's nothing new. I think those things will get sorted out over time. Every state is not going to demand that Uber drivers be employees nor will every country. There'll be some differences. And again, the player with the most scale is going to be best able to absorb those different regulatory regimes all over the world. It brings us to management and capital allocation. So in a business that has quote unquote won in a scale economies business, obviously that's that's a great position to have achieved. It then leads to a, a really important, maybe second act, I'll call it, which is if it is spewing free cash flow, then all of a sudden, future returns become deeply about how management allocates that capital. Did they do that productively? There's lots of different options. They can buy back stock. They can pay dividends, hopefully not for Ram, since he doesn't want them. They can invest. How do you think about current management and what matters for a business like this at this stage where capital allocation becomes really important? So I actually don't think we're at any point, any point right now where they should either buy back shares unless... The markets are really volatile and the stock price is really low and they want to show up, you know, they want to give some confidence to shareholders. But on a more normalized front, which is all we can model for, listen, the opportunity is so far ahead. I mean, there's so much yet to do. There's so much yet to do. I think we should not even be talking about dividend and share repurchases. That's financial engineering. What we should be doing is run the company for the management team. They have to recognize that the challenge Uber has which is going to be a multi-year structural headwind to Uber. It's not that 
people will stop. There's a demand problem or a supply problem or regulation problem. They have a talent problem. Uber is not the shining star for the best engineers and product people to go and work at, period. They are losing people hand over fist to faster, newer assets. Now, this is obvious because the company is 10 years old. This is also true in Facebook and also true in Google. But Uber is also losing people. And it's a great place for lots of smart recruiters to post the best engineers from. And Uber had an amazing engineering team, an amazing product team. The challenge they have is that the best capital allocation is to play offense. I would love to see the company growing the rights business without breaking a sweat for 20%, which they can easily just to the current products for the next five to seven years. But then what happens? We talked about the right business, the huge SAM and the small TAM and all these unused miles and cars. Well, Uber needs to find the next wedge to increase elasticity of demand by finding cheaper rights for people, which means they have to unlock a new category. They've not been able to figure that out just yet. The only way this happens is put a lot of money back into engineering and product, and they have lost that product engineering mojo right now. So the best use of capital, in my opinion, hire more engineers, make it a great place to work at again, have a product-centric mindset, and get people coming back. Literally, as we were talking, we have some data sources comparing DoorDash and Uber. DoorDash has the same number of job openings in the US today as Uber does, which means Uber has a rights business and eats business. And guess what? DoorDash has the same number of jobs, right? This is white-collar jobs, not blue-collar jobs. Number two, DoorDash's close rate. Close rate for Uber is 60 days right now to close an engineer. DoorDash is 40 days. They are working at one-third extra speed compared to Uber. The number of job openings, DoorDash is, it's interesting, they have active job cons going up to the right. They're increasing hiring. I look at Uber, their active job cons going down. Great for the stock. Great for the stock. I'm really happy. Those fixed costs are going to remain fixed, but decreased hiring. The best part of capital allocation is higher. And they've had you know, a lot of attrition, top-line attrition, to management attrition. For me, what I would hope the management team is not give dividends and not give a share buybacks. This is not the right time for that. But to take all those 10 to 11 cumulative free cash flow and reinvest it right back into astounding products and build organically versus going and acquiring companies willy-nilly, making mess of acquisitions, which they have in one specific case, growing by acquisition is really hard. For me, the case study is Booking versus Expedia. Booking did one thing, which was build the best place to acquire supply and demand. It became the best company in the world, the biggest, largest travel company in the world. Expedia was driven by acquisitions. And it's an admirable strategy. It kind of makes sense. It gets investors excited I just don't think that's the right way to invest, especially in a world where you're constrained by labor and talent, and there's a mad rush to get them. So invest in that, in my humble opinion. We're getting a little East Coast, West Coast here. So I'm definitely not arguing for return of capital day one. I just think in general that it's a really good discipline for a board and management team to always be thinking about capital return versus investment opportunity. And I clearly would prefer that Uber would have great high return projects available to it for its excess free cash, just mobility. I don't think we're in the end state. Is there room for that product to improve and for new form factors to be added to it? Absolutely. Including, yes, more lower price rides, a better ride share product, multiple riders in a single vehicle. There's a lot of room for that. I do think there's the the terms already used, super app, but I do think that there is 
the potential for a super app for on-demand transportation and other services sitting within Uber. You know, PayPal evolved from a, a very simple tool for moving money between friends. And now it's a digital wallet offering a wide array of financial services. I do think that potential is here for Uber. I wouldn't want a, a dividend or something like that if that was there. What you don't want is you don't want management teams trying to shoehorn into businesses that may not make sense to the detriment of return of capital and whatnot. There's tons of stories out there, of people not being disciplined around capital allocation that end up being wasteful to shareholders. I don't think Uber is in a position where it needs to be stressed out about returning capital one way or another at all. But I do think with the amount of cash that the business is going to be generating, it's a reasonable thing to talk about. It's a reasonable thing to keep in the back of your head. One thing that on the product side is fascinating to me is the notion of membership. I know this is something they've begun to explore. The frequency of use and the ubiquity of use of Uber, like Amazon, seems to lend itself to a prime-like annual membership. I certainly, I think I paid already, and it just seems like an obvious place to go. But it's a very different revenue structure model. You know, everyone hated Prime famously when Bezos launched it way back when. What do you think about? Prime-like membership as a key aspect of Uber's product and story going forward? I think it's usually a wonderful idea to have a sticky loyalty program, and membership is something like that. The best businesses in the world, like Costco, have a membership program. Amazon Prime has it. DoorDash, DashPass has it. Instacart has it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And especially for an on-demand business, it's really helpful because you can take the cost of membership, and then you can offset that for the cost of delivery, and good things happen in the business model. I think on the right side of the business, I don't think the membership makes a lot of sense because you only have two choices and you basically pick one of the delivery companies depending on price. Okay, you want to go from to the airport, you check the Uber app. If you're an Uber user, you open that first as your preference, but you also check the Lyft app. What's the price? And usually you go back to the Uber app. So putting a subscription for rides, I'm not sure that makes a lot of sense. But I do think doing subscription for Eats, which is what they have with the Uber Eats Pass, makes a ton of sense. Because what happens is the frequency of food usage is very, very high. People eat four meals a day. So you just got that going in your favor. And you've got a better competitor in the market, at least in the US. What you want to do is you want to get your very loyal consumers, sticky on your platform, have them the best supply, give them, you know, show them the love. And then, of course, the business works really well because you want to push for frequency of usage. So my point is, the pass works for food. I don't think the pass works for transport. Mario, anything else there of interest? I don't think they've exactly found the right formula yet, and they may still. I do think loyalty is an important factor. There's more to be tweaked there, probably to get it to a state where I'd kind of be more excited about it. I would argue the Uber credit card is actually really good, by the way. If you haven't used it, you should get one of those. They give you such incredible cash back and rewards. And I use it all the time because I actually finance my Uber purchases through my credit card. It's literally get points back and I get free food. So I'm really happy. Mario, you referenced the data set a number of times, debatable whether or not Google has more data, but it's one of those two, right? About people and their movements and the movement of stuff. Our good Twitter friend, Modest Proposal, always says on a long enough timeline, everyone sells ads. Do you think that that use of the data or other uses of the data become an important part of Uber's story? Or is it really just in service of a better and better product as it exists today? I think a lot of these companies would do well to see if there's an advertising model within their business. And there probably is here. Back to the data point, I don't think there's any question. I don't know of any 
entity, governments included, that would have as much information about local movements other than Uber. It's an absolutely massive strategic asset. And when I do think about longer term autonomous vehicles and whatnot, there's a big difference between hardware and software providers and then kind of running an efficient network. But that's going to be years from now. And I look at a decade ago, plus another decade and maybe some more time, the expertise in understanding how a city moves and the demands locally for all those movements, wide variety of ways that people use the service. It makes me have very little fear of autonomous vehicles ever impeding on Uber's business. I think there'll be a time when autonomous vehicles can service a portion of the demand that Uber generates, but there'll be a very long hybrid period of that. And I think the data is just massive moat, as big as they come. I completely agree. In fact, if you go back a few years, if you ever measured the quality of data scientists at different companies, Uber will stop five percentile in the world in terms of data engineering and data sciences. I actually think advertising is much closer than you think. You don't have to look over a long time frame. So first of all, let's talk about the rights business. You've actually got two forms of advertising there. One is the hardware software notion. So for in-car advertising, and they talked about that a little while ago, put a Firefly logo behind, put a video screen or whatever. I think that's not likely in the short term. What I find as a big Google shareholder, I'm always intrigued about why Google Maps doesn't monetize better, but you can see that within your app, in-app, they know when you're traveling, you're going to your commute in the morning, and they give you, hey, there's a Starbucks around the corner, stop by there, show this thing, and grab your free coffee, or your egg McMuffin, or whatever you want. A huge potential based on, as Mario said, they know exactly where you're going literally on a per meter basis or a per foot basis. So they should be able to hyper target as to you quite spectacularly. They don't do that right now. And I don't think it'll be done for a little bit. By Where ads have already started is if you open your Uber Eats app, when you search for a cuisine at the top, you actually see a sponsored ad by a specific company, a restaurant paying for a placement in the Uber Eats app, which is very powerful. And that's just pay for placement like Google, like Facebook, like whatever other ad business in the world. That's very powerful. Could be multiple billion dollars of equity value over time. That's a very short-term opportunity. And then when they turn on the grocery business, and I think that's the third part we've not really talked about, but a lot of effort with the corner shop acquisition, which is an excellent one, by the way. When we look at companies like Instacart, we look at the total basket of CPG spend at the large retailers, there's reason to believe in our math that on a per order basis, you can make between three and three and a half dollars in CPG spend uh, for a big basket and probably two dollars in CPG spend for a small basket. That CPG spend per order is pure profit, pure profit. There, there's no cost associated with that. That's just what marketing dollars people pay you to add that can of Pepsi to your checkout box when you leave. So I think if you had to look at those three buckets, I think delivery ads way in the future. I don't think it happens now. Food ads already happening right now, which we don't model out, but I think it could be just upside risk for all of us. And then I think once they turn on corner shop at scale, you're going to have CPG ads on every basket and very profitable as well. Let's say that you both were forced to put 100% of your net worth into the stock and go to sleep every night thinking about it. What would be the thing that most kept you from sleeping? What would keep you up at night most as like an existential risk to the position that Uber is in? I sleep pretty well at night. Because I think the mobility business bails everything else out of mistake. I'm less convinced 
about the delivery business longer term. I think the mobility business has proved its chops and I am quite certain that's going to turn out to be a pretty darn good business. In fact, I'll go so far as to say is if it doesn't turn out to be a good business, it'll be because it wasn't managed properly. It wasn't because I'm misunderstanding it somehow or or getting something wrong. So I think the quality of the mobility business allows me to sleep at night because I think I get a positive return from that and only that before we even get into the debate about whether freight distraction or not, and then how good delivery could be. I do think delivery could be pretty darn good. It's kind of in a more uncertain state right now. And of course, the private companies are raising money hand over this very high valuation. So I think there's a lot of people playing for an attractive end state in delivery. And you have to look around the corner to potentially see that delivery. But mobility, you don't. It's right there. It's right in front of your face. Like, Don't overthink it. It's there. This is a good business. It's going to happen. And that makes me feel good at night. The management is the answer, probably. It sounds like that's the thing that could, if it was mismanaged, be the biggest risk, in your opinion. Given the quality of the business, I think it would have to be mismanaged pretty badly. So I don't think it's going to be mismanaged badly. So I think it's on the way. They're on the way to delivering that vision. I don't think they can help but deliver it almost. I guess it's like that Warren Buffett thing, you know, like someone actually, I don't even call it that. Never mind. <laughs> we almost got through the whole thing without a perfect quote. Almost. Yeah, you blew, you blew it, Mario. <laughs> I didn't say it. How about you, Ramani? What would be your like one pick for existential risk? So first of all, on the point of Mario of the rights business being mismanaged, I don't even worry about that. It actually is incapable of being mismanaged. We know the people running it and they're sharp. They're sharp, highly capable, highly dependable, absolute rock stars. So I don't worry about that. I worry about back to the thing, which is for me, it's the flow of talent and engineering and product is what defines great companies. I've been an investor, but I'm not the classic Wall Street train investor. I'm a product manager who became an investor. And so for me, everything starts with, do you have a great product that delights consumers? Can you verticalize a highly fragmented market where people hate their existing alternatives? This is true 100% for almost everything that Uber does because nobody wants to sit in a taxi cab anymore. You're not going back and you're sure as hell not paying 6% of the Boston cab taxi for credit card processing, which is what they charge. That doesn't worry me. For me, it's all about this company has lost their mojo on talent. So if I wanted to own this company for five or seven years, I'm going to have a difficult time owning for five or seven years because when you sit on the top, I look at the flows of talent, the way they handle product, their organic innovation, it's good, but it's not good enough to compete in today's very competitive world. So my view is it'll be a great stock. Uh, the question is, will it be a great business 10 years from now? TBD. And that's what, I mean, I sleep well too, but I would say that's the one thing I would encourage the management to just go back to their roots of being just this talent magnet at scale. If we saw signs of that happening, I'd be happy for them to run EBITDA neutral zero for the next 10 years. No problem. Don't generate a single dollar of EBITDA. Put it all back into the business. But give us the confidence you have that. Well, guys, this has been so much fun. I feel like this business allows you to explore like every aspect of market returns, but also capital allocation and scale economies and all these cool topics. And it feels like it's been a really thorough breakdown of the business. I always love that quote. Don't tell me what you think. Tell me what's in your portfolio. You both have Uber you know, strongly in the portfolio. Anyone can look it up and see for themselves. So I think you've been the perfect people to consider this and educate the audience on it. Thank you both so much for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it, Patrick. Thank you so much. 
To find more episodes of breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 